we come to Genesis chapter 36, and here we're given this description of the family of Esau. And I'll just tell you right in the beginning that we're going to skip a bunch of this. I'll touch on a number of things, and we'll look at things. But for the sake of the Scripture and what we're studying, the family lines that the Scripture are following are following the lines that bring us to Jesus. So in the very beginning, when you're reading in Genesis and you get those family names and those family trees that are given, every one of them is extending towards Jesus. When you come to Esau, it dead ends. Now, um, the significance and the reason the scripture includes it is because they become a perennial enemy of Israel. So uh, when certain characters in the scripture sort of crop back up, uh, for instance, in the account of Esther, when the whole heritage of Israel is under threat, that's a descendant of Esau. So we see throughout the scripture these things, and, you're, and sometimes you're left wondering, like, why, why is this going on? And then when you read the backstory, you come to understand the line that brings you to that moment. So we're going to skip over a lot of the names as we move through this because they are blatantly meaningless to us. They're not going to have any impact on our future understanding or our current application of what is here. And add to the fact I'll mispronounce almost all of the names. So with that, Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of of Esau, who is Edom. And you're going to hear that a few times. The nation of Edom. So the Edomites that you run into throughout the scripture are all descendants of Esau. Now, if you think about Jacob and Esau and the animosity that was between these two brothers, Jacob using the trickery in order to gain the birthright from his father, which was going to happen whether he had used that manipulation or not, because God had declared that that was what was going to happen. The older was going to serve the younger. It's just a tragic and unfortunate thing that Jacob and his mother took the matter into their own hands, manipulated Esau in order to try and accomplish God's will. I can assure you, if they had left it alone, God would have accomplished that work also. There are people that get into these huge philosophical debates about, well, that was the predestination of God, and he had fully intended, and so they weren't actually in rebellion to God when they were doing those things. That's not true. God judges them for their sinfulness. Okay, uh, you, you take that mentality, and it, it's significant that we take a moment and look at this, because... Uh, you know, Calvinism, for instance, within Christianity, many of the elements of Calvinism I wholeheartedly agree with. Others are so wildly disproportionate because they're they're clinging to certain passages to the neglect of others. There are teachings within Calvinism that say, for instance, you have no choice in the matter. You're going to be a Christian if God intends you to be a Christian or not, so choice doesn't have anything to do with it. Some of us agree with that more strongly than others, but there are those that agree with that so strongly that they say it's inappropriate of you to ever share your faith with someone because perhaps they're not predestined to be a Christian, and now you're putting undue pressure on them. They're going to try for the rest of their life to be a Christian when they were never pre... It gets really weird, Okay. Uh, within the setting, every man has his responsibility. God has his sovereignty, and then we have to make our choices also. How do those th two things work together and couple together? I think it's impossible for us to understand on this side of eternity. We will be in the presence of God someday and have a complete understanding of these things. Here, Esau has this anger and this animosity, which for the moment has been laid to rest between himself 
and Jacob. But what you're going to see is that all the subsequent generations that come, the bitterness is still there. Bitterness is a treacherous thing. If we hear it in our own heart, hear it in someone else's mouth, as Christians, we should address it immediately. Allowing bitterness to fester is completely ungodly. It destroys the work of God in our lives. We need to be, what's, I mean, what's the hallmark of our faith? Grace, forgiveness, right? That's where it's all at. If we're walking around with seeds of bitterness, you can guarantee, I mean, that's a level of hypocrisy. If I'm looking you in the face and acting like, oh, I love you, but I've got this against you here. That hypocrisy, as Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy. It's going to take root. It's going to grow, right? You can look at me and say, Will's a knucklehead, and I love him anyway. You know why you can do that? Because I do it with you all the time. That's how we get along. That's I'm forgiving you, you're forgiving me. This is the family of God. Why? Because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. It's this bitterness between Jacob and Esau that stays and destroys this family. Grace and forgiveness is how we function. So <laughs> verse 2, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, and therein is the trouble. He's departing from God's plan. He's not following what God wanted in order to keep that purity of bloodline which is going to come to Jesus Christ. So skipping over these descendants, touching in verse 4 on Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz, we're going to see later, there's a Jobab. And that may be <coughs> the Job of the book of Job. And Eliphaz may be his counselor that comes to him in the book of Job. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So there's some significance there, perhaps. In verse 5, at the end, these were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, in verse 6, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Look at verse 7. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers, could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau, again, is Edom. So think about this for a minute. The conflict which arose <coughs> between Jacob and Esau, when Esau expresses his greatest anxiety over the situation, He's saying to his father, is there not a blessing for me also? He's completely thinking materially. Okay, He just wants the stuff. He doesn't want the godly heritage. He doesn't want the biblical, spiritual blessings that had been promised to Abraham. He's rejected that very soundly. He's spoken ill of it when he was negotiating with his brother for soup to fill his stomach? he What is this thing? I don't want anything to do with this birthright, with this heritage. And yet the blessing he wants, well, interestingly enough, he's gotten it. His possessions are so many, he can't live in proximity to his brother. The, the, their herds are going to eat up the, the ground. They're not going to be able to sustain all of their flocks and their herds. They've got to separate from one another. I make the point because sometimes we miss the greater blessing. We focus on things of the earth as though that were the blessing of the Lord. And when our pockets are full, and when our stomachs are full, and when our homes and our garages are full, we've missed the point altogether that Jacob is now known as Israel. 
the man governed by God. If all else was gone, and he was still a man governed by God, then he would have everything. He could have nothing materially, and he would have everything if he was still a man governed by God. Now, Esau has great wealth and <coughs> no relationship with God. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons. Again, you see Eliphaz there, again in verse 11, and then in 12. And Esau's son, in verse 12, she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Timnah you know, was a concubine of Eliphaz, and she gives birth to Amalek. Now, Amalek becomes the father of the entire nation of the Amalekites. Now, I think that probably for many of us that rings the bell. Because by the time you come to King Saul, the Amalekites have become such a murderous tribe. They, they, they're a threat to not only all of their neighbors, but themselves also. They're murdering their own children. They're sacrificing to the Baal gods. They're an out-of-control people who are bent on death. And God has to put forth the mandate to Saul, you need to wipe these people out. They're a threat to everyone and everything. If they're allowed to exist, and those you know, people who are opposed to the Scripture, they look at it and they say, oh, what a horrible thing for God to do. Genocide. He's calling for Saul to wipe out an entire nation. Well, here's the thing. I'll say it again. The Amalekites have become so murderous. They're going to wipe everyone out around them, including themselves. They are just bent on destruction. And God says, I've got to bring an end to these people. I've sent my prophets. I've sent my ministers. I've warned. I've tried to pull them in. I've tried to get them to repent. And they are just bent, as I've said several times now, bent on death. They're going to be the destruction of everyone and everything around them. So they've got to go. So he sends Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And he, in fact, puts the mandate down so hard that God says, I want you to kill everything that's Amalekite. Men, women, children, infants, dog, sheep, cattle, livestock, all that is Amalekite needs to be wiped out. Sounds incredibly cruel, but God in his sovereignty understand what needs to happen. Send Saul. Saul disobeys him. Saul basically wipes out the armies of the Amalekites. He even keeps the king, Agag, of the Amalekites. He keeps the attractive men and women as servants, and a lot, or if not all, of the livestock, to the point that when Samuel the prophet arrives, he's now blind. He's so old. He uh, is greeted by Saul, who says, I've done the will of the Lord. And Samuel, I'm paraphrasing, essentially says, really? Then why can I still hear goats and cattle? I can't see them, but I can hear them. If you've wiped out everything that is Amalekite, why is their livestock still alive? And Saul there says, oh, I've saved these as a sacrifice to the Lord. I, I want to give to God. Well, the sacrifice was supposed to be in the slaughter. Send everything to me, I'll sort it out, was what God was saying. He makes this claim of, I want to give to God. And Samuel gives us that classic verse where he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. The Amalekites, uh, they prove to be, again, this thorn in the side, all the way up to, in fact, Jesus. Because you have uh, Herod the Great, who descended from Esau also, who tried to kill Jesus. He may have been the last of the Edomites. <coughs> he killed all of the children, all of the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two years old. Had Saul done what he was supposed to do, you wouldn't have had that threat to the nation of Israel. And therein is a powerful lesson for us all. If we leave 
the attitude of Esau alive in our hearts, it will produce things that will destroy us in the end. We have to contend with the flesh. We have to be men and women who are Israel, not Esau. We want the blessing of the Lord without the obedience. We want the possessions given to us by God without the worship. And in the end, it's extremely costly. So if you skip through 36 and you see the chief sons of Esau beginning in verse 15, and then uh, when you get to verse 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Hornite who inhabited the land. That extends down to verse 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before the king reigned over the children of Israel. <laughs> and then in verse 33, Job, Jobab, the son of Zerah, is mentioned. And if we do a careful study of the timelines of the books of the Bible, it actually seems that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. You say, wait a minute, Genesis is telling us the beginning of creation. Moses wrote Genesis. As best we can tell, he had the original writings of Adam all the way through all of the patriarchs up to Abraham. And these records here that we're reading in Genesis were probably compiled. So he had either their journals or their notes or their memoirs, and he compiled them because when you read through particularly Genesis, it tells us factually of how things transpired, but then you have comments that are added in that give us greater understanding. So it seems that Moses was reading the writings, perhaps, of, of, like I say, as far back as even Adam, and then because of his relationship and direct communication with God, was being given the detailed understanding and adding those comments in. So you have, we might say, the Bible and Moses' commentary coupled together in the book of Genesis. That's written after the book of Job. That's why when you're reading Job, Many of the things that are said about God don't line up with the Scripture as far as God's character and personality, who He is and how He behaves. You know, Eliphaz is making accusations against Job and actually against God because he doesn't have the understanding of God we have that's based in the Scripture. They were worshipers of God, but their understanding was tainted because of the distance between the human race and God at that time. It wasn't until Moses that we get that really clear, direct understanding. So anyway, it's possible that the Jobab spoken of here in verse 33 is Job, and Eliphaz is his counselor there. Verse 40 of chapter 36 says, And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names, they read through all of those there at the end of verse 43. Esau, one more time, was the father of the Edomites. Now, just so we're clear, God still has a special place in his heart for Esau and Edom when we're reading through this chapter. Regardless of all the difficulties that are here, Deuteronomy chapter 23 Verse 7, the Lord speaking to the nation of Israel says, You shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. So regardless of the tensions, regardless of the fact that when they came out of Egypt and they wandered through the wilderness, the Edomites you know, both attacked them and neglected them, refused to give them water, refused to give them food, attacked them from their you know, uh, flanks and from behind so that Joshua was having defend. Even in the midst of all of that, God is saying, I do not want you to hate these people. They are your brethren. They are your descendants. In that, when we, by the time we get to the Amalekites and God is saying, okay, that's it. They need to be wiped out. I, I include Deuteronomy 23.7 so we understand God has been gracious with them for a tremendous amount of time. 
He's trying all through history to bring the descendants of Esau into a place of repentance. His kindness, his goodness, it's seen throughout the Scripture. So, now we kind of dig in a little more meaty when you get to Genesis chapter 37, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. So this is <coughs> why back in chapter 36 it said, you know, that Esau had left and you know they were dwelling in a place that, where they were strangers. It's referring to Canaan. So they're, they're coming into a land that's already occupied by Canaanites. And they're going to become the rulers of the land. They're going to become the people who own and possess the land. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now, that may be sort of a foolish thing that Joseph does at the moment, but within it, there is an honesty in that if he were working for his father and doing what they were doing for a job, he wouldn't have been doing the things they were doing. They're taking advantage of their father. They're doing things, whatever they might be, that their father would not want done. And he reports on them to his father. Now, I want you to notice that his father doesn't scold him or correct him and say, you're just being overly sensitive, get off their case. That's how shepherds act when they're out doing their job. The report comes back, that your sons, my brothers, have been behaving in such a way, and he's upset about it. He, he's, he's, he's actually you know, concerned. So now Israel, verse uh, 3 says, loved Joseph. And again, now we begin to see Jacob continuously referred to as Israel. Jacob pops up a couple of times, but from this point forward, he's mostly referred to as Israel. So the change is very thorough. He's being referred to as <laughs> the man governed by God. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and because of his mother also. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Now, um, you can do this study on your own and create whatever mindset you want to about this coat of many colors, but you know, for the sake of the passage, we're just going to dwell on that. It's referred to as a coat of many colors. Most of us, you know, come up through Sunday school and seeing Joseph there in his, you know, sort of, I don't know, psychedelic coat or whatever it is that he's got going on. But um, there are several different ways that this is perhaps thought of. You know, some of the more modern scholars really digging through the language think that perhaps this is saying that it was a, co a coat that was long and the sleeves were long. Uh, workers uh, didn't wear sleeves. Uh, they usually had exposed arms because they're with the sheep and it's constantly getting tattered and worn and filthy. So they wore a shorter sleeved jacket or vest even. So it's perhaps that the coat is long and the sleeves are long. And the idea is that Joseph is not labor. He's management. His father is looking at him as more of an overseer rather than a worker, which is why he's accepting the report of, hey, your sons, my brothers, aren't doing their job properly. Whatever it's interpreted as, and there's no way to definitively say, I'm, I'm not trying to confuse you. I just don't want you to go home and go digging through the commentaries and suddenly think that you've discovered you know the proper way of looking at this because we no one knows other than this it was different than what his brothers wore and it distinguished him from them it was special we we don't know if it was a special color a special length what 
but it was different, it was special, and it distinguished him from them, and they knew it. They have a resentment about it, in fact. So, the tunic of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, I want you to notice something. Shortly, Israel is going to rebuke Joseph. So Joseph is not above being corrected by his father. And his father doesn't favor him to the degree where he's just getting, letting him get away with everything. You think about it. He's one of those guys that probably does a good job, especially when we start looking at his behavior beyond this instance, once he's inside Egypt, and you begin to see how he behaves, you're like, wow, you put this guy under the worst pressure, and he's still a good employee. So, so it isn't that he's arrogant and that he's speaking ill of his brothers out of turn as much as it is, hey, dad has told us how this job is supposed to be done. Why aren't we all doing it this way? That causes him to be in favor with his father, and his brothers resent him for it. So really, what are we talking about in the resentment? It's his brother's failures. It's the fact that there's compromise in their lives. It doesn't have much to do with his thinking of himself as better than them. It's the fact that they aren't towing the line. They're men of spiritual compromise, to say the least. And that's, if you know the story at all, that's going to become very obvious quickly as you move through this. So they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream. Um, uh, so I guess I missed uh, verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him uh, more than all his brothers, they hated him and spoke, could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood up, <laughs> upright. Excuse me. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. So you've probably seen those classic pictures, you know, hay, wheat, barley. They're not baled. You know, in ancient history, the way they are today, they are cut at the bottom of the stalk, held under the arm, and then eventually there's, you know, a handful of strands that are taken and tied around the middle of that. So you have a bundle of the, the grain stalks standing up in a sheath, and then they come by in the wagon and they load those on to go thresh the wheat or the grain out of them. So the idea is all these sheaves that have been cut and bundled, standing. And he's saying, you know, mine was standing upright in the midst, and all of yours began to bow down uh, to me. His brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now, you got you to, you know, just plug in the idea that this is sort of a family history thing, right? You know, Esau was the elder, and their father, Jacob, ended up having authority over Esau. And so now they're like, okay, that's our family's history. That's the th way things went down with our dad and our uncle. But, well, I'm the oldest, and this is the second oldest, and surely Joseph, being the youngest, is relatively insignificant. And after all, he's you know, a rat who likes to tell on us, and he's a goody-two-shoes who thinks he does everything better than us. And now he's having dreams where he thinks we're going to serve him as though somehow what went on with dad and our uncle is also going to happen in this family. So they've got this bent and animosity toward him. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and here it is. His father rebuked him and said to him, What 
what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Now, keep the mindset for a moment in verse 10, and let me just move us into a different discussion for the moment. <clears throat> the interpretation of Scripture. There are a few rules, you know, uh, you have hermeneutics and homiletics that help us to understand the harmony of the scriptures and the way things work. And, you know, those are just big words that scholars like to use and make themselves sound important and significant. There is a term in the midst of it uh, that is expositional constancy. So if we just get those terms simplified, harmony of the scripture and constancy of the scripture. If, if we understand a certain character of God or the scripture from one portion of the Bible, then that character needs to remain consistent throughout the Bible, right? God is the same yesterday and today and forever. We, you know, I, I do not like it when people refer to the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. His character is seen consistently throughout all. In interpreting the scripture, expositional constancy, to explain things in the same consistent and constant manner. For instance, if I've lost you with boredom, follow this idea for a moment. Jesus is teaching the parables of the kingdom, and he talks about the sower scattering the seed. And there in his explanation, not our interpretation, Jesus says that the birds that come and steal the seeds from the pathway are the devil himself or devils. So the gospel landing in someone's heart when it's immediately snatched away so that they like don't even have any memory of it. You talk to somebody, share the scripture, you talk to them next time, they're like, I've never heard that before, as though it had been stolen out of their heart. I've seen it many times, especially those who are involved with cults. You find some truth and share it with them from the scripture, and the next time they don't even remember having that conversation. It's kind of weird. The Lord says that the devil himself is the bird in his illustration. You move into the next section of parables, and Jesus talks about the kingdom like being like a, a sea, a mustard seed or a grain of mustard seed that grows up and fills the whole earth. And he says it becomes so large that the birds of the air can nest in its branches. Oh, hey, wait a second. Jesus just gave us the explanation that birds of the air are devils. And now he's telling us birds of the air can make their home in the kingdom of God. In the church, I say to you, yes, they can. That's why you see some of the demonic doctrines in the church today that are here. Their voice is being heard by certain men and women who consider themselves ministers, and they're preaching things that are contradictory to God's word. So when we see something explained in the scripture, then we should assume, unless the scripture gives us a new explanation of it, that that's consistently what it means throughout the Scripture. Here, we get to the book of Revelation, and we see that there is a woman who's giving birth, and she is surrounded by these stars. And then people try to interpret that as the church, and what's referred to as replacement theology emerges, that Israel has been done away with, and now we need to look at the church is the fulfillment of those things seen in Revelation. Right here, we are told the sun and the moon and the stars are Israel. Nowhere is that reinterpreted. Israel is not done away with. It's very significant because the things spoken of in Revelation that have yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled in Israel, the nation, not the church. We shouldn't be trying to replace Israel with the church. The church has its own promises. That The Lord has his things that he says to the bride of Christ and to us as believers. But what is said to Israel and of Israel 
needs to remain in place, especially when you see the things going on that are going on today. So verse 11, back in this discussion, he's just shared the dream. It says, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. He, he dwelt upon it, much like we see Mary doing, how she stored those things up in her heart that had been spoken of and prophesied about Jesus. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. You can almost hear the ominous music right there. What in the world are they going back to Shechem for? That is, that is where their sister was raped. That is where they butchered all of the men of that community. This is where they left from in order to escape the hatred and the animosity of the surrounding tribes and people that were from that region. And they're going back there. I mean, God only knows how to interpret that. Was this some kind of strange bravado? Were they acting like the tough guys? You know, they were the going back to the very place where they had, you know, killed off all these people, you know, almost daring the surrounding, you know, occupants of the country to say anything to. I, I can't even explain why they would go back to such a sinful history. Of themselves. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. So it might have been in Israel's mind that, you know, that's not a good place for them to be. You know, I, I don't know if he necessarily knew they were going there or if word came to him that they had gone there, but whatever it is, he, he decides he needs to know about the welfare of the boys. Now a certain man found him, that's speaking of Joseph, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. So they even affixed that mocking title to him. Oh, here comes the dreamer. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. That is uh, pretty amazing that they have gone from the place of brothers all the way to the place of murder that easily. When we're reading in the previous chapters, about Simeon and Levi killing all the men of Shechem. Then you come to this moment, and they're talking about killing their own brother. You're starting to see a family problem here. These young men are godless in their behavior. For as much as you can look at certain aspects of their life and see God working in their father's life, you know, you don't have to rewind very far to realize Jacob left home under threat of his own brother Esau, went to Laban, his uncle, lived there for all of those years. And we kind of have this sense that on the way he met with God at Bethel and there must be some kind of godly relationship in his heart and his mind. But then when he returns to the land, he has to say to his whole family, all right, everybody, we need to get rid of all the idols from our household. And we need to even get rid of the earrings which represent the idolatrous gods we've been worshiping. You come to this moment and, you know, you can kind of lose grip with the idea, thinking, well, this is sort of a godly man. This is a guy who's had this relationship with you know the god of abraham the god of isaac and now must be the god of jacob and yet 
He's having to tell his family, all right, guys, we're done being idolaters. Let's get rid of all of that. And then you begin to see the behavior of his children. And I'm left wondering, like, what kind of household were these young men actually raised in? That they they literally, at the drop of a hat, decide, you know what we should do? We should kill our brother. I mean, most of us that grew up with siblings know what it's like to get really angry at our siblings. But was there, you don't have to raise your hand, was there ever a moment where you actually plotted to kill him, you know? Interesting that they get this far that quickly, that they're openly talking about it with one another. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into a pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring them back to his father. Let's just let him starve to death. We don't, need, we don't need to kill him. We don't need to be responsible for his death. And in that, he's just negotiating at this point. You know, you're, you're looking at <clears throat> one man against nine at the moment. And uh, he's negotiating for the 11th brother Joseph's life right now. So <clears throat> here he is in this treacherous situation. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. And there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judas said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. It seems like a reasonable plan at the moment. Let's avoid the guilt of bloodshed. Verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, you know, at this point, there's many different artistic depictions about Joseph pleading and trying to, you know, why didn't he tell the Ishmaelites that he was their brother? I mean, at this point, if you just take a logical approach to this, He's probably very glad to be sold off to the Ishmaelites rather than remain in the hands of his brothers. They've got murder in mind. And at this point, being sold off as a slave sounds a whole lot better than having your throat slit by those who are your own blood. So he's you know, sold off and uh, going to be on his way. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in blood, then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. There's a faint occurrence going on here that reaches all the way back to Jacob and Esau. The clothes of Esau and the skins of of the animal put on Jacob as he goes into his father and deceives his father with the very appearance of his brother Esau. Now, one more time, the tables are being turned and he's having to experience this type of deception. This, this is a difficult family. I like the fact that the scripture is so honest. It unflinchingly shows us these people's failures that the family has this deceptive trait continuously. You know, I don't know about you. You hear about certain families and, you know, whether they're like extremely calm, placid people. Someone describes you, you go, 
oh, that makes sense of that family. Or if they're high strung, you go, yeah, that's how that family is. Or, you know, if they have, you know, great sense of humor, you're like, oh, I read. here, uh, they deceive one another all the time. Makes sense. This is how this family functions. Yes, we are an incredibly dysfunctional family, the body of Christ. But we're much better than the other options. You know, those people that want to say, oh, I can't go to church. It's full of hypocrites. Really? How long have you worked in the workplace? You want to talk about a place that's full of hypocrites? You know, have you, did anybody attend high school here? I mean, talk about a place filled with hypocrites. The world is full of hypocrites. The church should continuously be repenting and being led by the Lord. So here, the deception one more time. You know, he's been torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his waist, mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept over him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. We'll see how that unfolds as we look into next week's uh, study. The closing verse for today, Proverbs 26, verse 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and whoever rolls a stone will have it roll back upon him. When people plot and scheme, it always comes back around. It's uh, the sort of thing that we should not participate in and also take great assurance in. We should avoid being this way ourselves, but also understand that if we can see people doing this stuff in our lives, God is going to contend with them. You know, when we read in the New Testament, the Lord saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We often jump right on board with that verse, like, yeah, God, go get them. And honestly, any of us that have been sinful enough, myself included, to retaliate against people, to try and get back at somebody, we go too far. We're never balanced about it. We do not manage repaying someone properly. Our sinfulness causes us to go overboard. God balances the scales. If someone has done wrong to you, taken from you, if you trust God, He'll take it out of their account and He will repay you. You may not be able to recognize it. It's not like if they took $100 from you, you're going to turn around and there's going to be $100 in the mail or something like that. I mean, maybe something like that's going to happen. What you'll recognize over time is that God does balance the scales. I had a man that I worked for many years ago now who was stealing. I was the assistant manager, and he was the manager. And he was stealing tens of thousands of dollars from the company that we were working for, unbeknownst to me. I'm just working my butt off trying to be a good Christian. As the company zeroes in on him, he fired me. He told them, the only person who has access to all of these things that keep missing is Will. And he played it up really good with them. You know, Will has a young family, he's a nice guy, but he's doing bad things. You know, we don't want to get him in trouble. Let me just fire him. That's how he presented it to them. So he fired me. Well, the money kept missing. So they actually set up a surveillance system. And they caught him stealing the money. And I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars. They contacted me as a company just a few months after they caught him. Offered me my job back. I couldn't take it. I had already moved on. But gave me the assurance that all of my status with them had been restored. If I wanted you know, a job reference from them or anything they could do to help me, they would be glad to do it. I got to tell you, when I first got fired, I was so angry at that man. 
so angry at that man. After he got fired, I had that sense of vindication. But I was still very angry at the man until I was in a prayer meeting and a mutual friend came to me and said, did you hear what happened to that man yesterday? And I said, no, what happened? He said he was riding on South Main Street and Brewer on his Harley Davidson and an elderly woman pulled right out in front of him. Struck the vehicle right in the doors and nearly died. I spent the next six weeks praying for that man every day that he would survive. And what the Lord showed me was the sinfulness of my own heart. All the anger that I had wished upon that man, once I saw him in the most desperate place of his life, I was broken hearted. We want to be very careful what we think of others. Let God balance the scales. Joseph does that. He's a great example of a man who backs away from the people who are doing him wrong, and he lets God deal with them. Let God deal with those who've done you wrong. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, (laughs) we are so grateful for the clarity of your word and the honesty of your word. If we wrote our life's story, we would leave out all of our failures, all of our bad spots. You don't do that. You unflinchingly show us people's compromise and failures. And as such, it shows us your grace towards us. Lord, help us to be men and women that are Israel, governed by God, rather than deceivers, rather than what we were born as in our natural sinful state, that we would be men and women that followed you, that loved you, that served you with our lives. Fill us with your spirit. Use us as your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.